So today we are in Joshua chapter 23 and 24 as we finish up the book of Joshua. And in Joshua 23, we see Joshua give a, a pep talk to the leaders of Israel. We're gonna focus our time really on Joshua 24 today, but I would encourage you to go back and read Joshua 23 sometime this week. A lot of the same themes we see in Joshua 24 come up first in Joshua 23. And the, the context here in Joshua 23, we hear that these events happen a long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. So the context here is that this is all happening about at least 25 years after Israel first crossed the Jordan at the beginning of the book of Joshua. So we look today at Joshua 24. Joshua is going to lead the people of Israel in renewing their covenant that they made with the Lord. Now, making a covenant was a common thing in the ancient Near Eastern culture between parties, especially between parties where there was someone who was superior and then someone or peoples who would have been subjects. Like a nation might make a covenant with a vassal nation that was serving them. But the thing that is really unheard of outside of scripture is a deity making a covenant with creation. Uh, but over and over again in the Bible, we see God, the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, making covenants with his creation, his people. And it's really incredible that God would choose to make a covenant with us. So let's begin in Joshua 24, and I'm going to start with verse 1 through 13. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. 
and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So in these first 13 verses, as Joshua begins to lead these people through a covenant renewal, Joshua starts by reminding the people of their history. And specifically, this is a history of God's loving kindness toward his people. There's a lot that happens here because we are covering hundreds of years of history. But just to hit the high points, Joshua begins by reminding the Israelites of the story of Abraham that God called Abraham many, many years ago when he and his family were worshiping foreign gods. God called to Abraham and revealed himself to him, and Abraham responded with obedience. God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham a great nation, an incredible promise to a man who was old and whose wife was barren, that he would give him a land, that he was going to take him to a place where his people would flourish, and that he would bless his people, that they might be a blessing to the nations. And this story of Israel is really the story of God fulfilling all of these promises that he has made to Abraham, right? The Israelites now are occupying this land that was promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago. So we see that God here has been faithful to keep these promises he made so long ago that he kept the promises he made to Abraham, even though God's timing might have seemed slow at the time. Notice the pace. First that he called Abraham, he promised to give him a great nation. Then Abraham had Isaac, then Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and so on. So we see this fulfillment of God's promises happening over time, but God proves himself faithful. One of the things that I noticed in these first 13 verses are the times you hear the pronoun I. So the Lord is speaking through Joshua and God is reminding the people of all that he has done for them, lest they forget that they are in the promised land because of God's kindness to them. You hear it over and over. I delivered you. I took you. I gave you. I fought for you. I delivered you again. I sent the hornet. I gave you a land. They are the recipients of God's kindness and grace. It's not because of anything they have done to merit or to earn God's love or because of their own prowess or their own techniques. They have had success in the land, but it's because of God's favor and because God has chosen to set his love on them. And you really see that emphasized here in verses 13 through 14. I wanna read those again for us. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. 
So any success that the people are experiencing now is they have gone into the promised land, they've gone through all these conquests, they've defeated the nations that are living there. Any success that they are experiencing is because of God's graciousness and kindness to them. They are living in these houses they didn't build. They are flourishing in cities that were planned and were there long before they came. And they are eating the fruit of vineyards and gardens that they did not plant. Um, my grandmother would say it's kind of like God is saying to them, don't go and forget, don't go and get too big for your britches, believing that you worked hard and you were successful and that you earned all of this and that you did all of this for yourself. The Lord is saying to them, remember, all of these things are gracious gifts from me. And we can easily fall into this same trap, I think, uh, as we look at the things in our lives and sometimes we see them as things that we have earned or rights that we possess rather than things that are gifts from God. So the relationships that we have, the careers that we work, the places where we live, all of our possessions, these are things that are gifts from God. Um, you may have worked hard to get where you are in your career and there is something to be said for hard work or you may have put a lot into this lovely home that you live in but at the end of the day we have to see every good gift that we have is a gift from the lord um, and that even that he allowed us to have the willpower and the intelligence to be able to climb that ladder at work and to succeed in our career or that he is the one who brought this relationship into our life that's been a blessing. One of the things that Dr. Westmoreland, who is the president of Sanford for many, many years, would say is that we sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. Um, I, I thought about that a lot when I was a student at Beeson and would sometimes sit outside and enjoy the, the beauty of Sanford's campus. I am not a, a gardener, uh, so if you come to our house, you will not be admiring our flower beds, for instance. But I used to love and sit outside of Beeson and sit and just study and see the beauty of the flowers that were planted there or to sit on the quad underneath these huge trees that were there long before I ever came and will be there long after I am gone. Uh, and there a picture to me that there are a lot of metaphorical shades I enjoy, a lot of trees I sit under that I did not plant, a lot of things that are gifts from the Lord to me. And so that's a, a question for us today, I think, and a challenge. So what metaphorical shade do you enjoy because of God's kindness and graciousness to you? And do you live with an awareness that these things really are gifts from Him? So let's continue on as we read more about this renewal of the covenant in verses 14 through 18. We're going to see that this relationship that the Lord has with his people, it's a relationship that is based on grace, but it requires obedience. So that God's call to them is that they ought to respond to his love and his mercy and his compassion and his kindness with obedient hearts ready to serve and worship him. Let's start in verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sights and preserved us in all the ways that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove us out before all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for He is our God. So verse 15, I think, is one of the most familiar in Joshua. Choose to stay whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the, the context here is that this choice is embedded in this truth of relationship. So in these first 13 verses, Joshua has been reminding the people of their relationship with the Lord, of all the Lord has done for them. And Joshua says, on the basis of this relationship, therefore, you are called to serve and to fear and to worship the Lord. Now, this fearing God is not just being afraid of God, but is a call to live in reverence and in honor of who He is in all of His goodness and His kindness and His mercy and His holiness, that He's a God who's set apart and who is other and distinct. And Joshua also says they are called to serve the Lord. We hear this word for serve over and over in chapter 24, and it could also be translated as worship. So Joshua is telling the people that they are at a turning point and they must decide now whom they will serve. Will you serve the gods of your ancestors, the gods that Abraham's family worshiped before I called Abraham to myself, the Lord says? Will you serve the gods of the Amorites, so the gods that are being worshiped in Canaan in this land that you've come to possess? Or will you serve Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the one who delivered you, the one who called you out of Egypt, the one who has walked before you, the one who has fought on your behalf. But you must decide who you will serve because you can't serve Yahweh and the other gods. And in verses 16 through 18, the people affirm that they, like Joshua, will follow the Lord, the God who delivered them out of Egypt. But now things get tricky here in verse 19. I'm gonna read verses 19 through 28 for us to see how Joshua is going to respond to the people's positive affirmation. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. 
He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So as Joshua is renewing the covenant here, we, we back up in our heads a little bit to the, the covenant that Moses made with the people of Israel and with the Lord in Exodus 20. Because the way that that is set up is really similar to Joshua 24. You see in Exodus 20, as the Lord is giving the Ten Commandments, He begins on the basis of relationship there. He says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt in the house of slavery. Now therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the commandments go. And so the covenant that God had made with the Israelites as they had journeyed out of Egypt was one based on relationship. Because God had delivered them and because He was their God, they were called to obedience and called to worship and to serve Him alone. And yet we know what happened just a, a few chapters later. The people made idols and they worshiped golden calves saying, these are the gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt. How quickly our hearts turn to sin. And I think that that is maybe what is in the, the mind of Joshua as he responds so negatively in verse 19 to the people. The people say, yes, we will serve the Lord. He is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. Joshua knows these people. He has journeyed with them. He was one of the spies who went out to look at the promised land and the, one of the two that came back with a positive report. Joshua knows their fallenness and their susceptibility to sin. Uh, I don't think it's that Joshua knows the future, but I think it's that Joshua knows the wickedness and the broken inclinations of the people's hearts. Um, and the, the hard thing is that eventually these words that Joshua utters will come to pass. So the people will live in the land, they will experience success, they will have the fruits that God has given them, these vineyards, these cities. And yet over time, what's gonna happen is that the people's hearts will turn away from the Lord. They'll be tempted to worship the other gods of the land. And they'll fall away from Yahweh. And the Lord will send prophets to come to the people and to preach this message of repentance, to remind them of their covenant with Him and to remind them to turn back to Him. And yet the people won't listen. And so eventually the Israelites will experience the curses that are listed out in Scripture for breaking their covenant. 
they'll experience famine, they'll experience war, they'll experience pestilence, and eventually they will experience exile. So the land that God graciously gave them will be taken from them as God will use other nations to come in and to overtake his people and to exile them. They couldn't live up to their end of the covenant. They couldn't obey the law perfectly, and neither can we. So if the story ended here at this place where the Israelites are affirming this covenant and we think, but are you really going to do it? Are you really going to keep your word? Well, if we've read the rest of the Old Testament, we know that it's not true. Um, they're, going to, they're going to fail. But the good news, this is not the end of the story for them or for us. So there are fallible people who have made a covenant. But the good news is that they have made a covenant with an infallible God. They cannot be faithful to keep their promises because of their brokenness and because of their sin. But the good news is that they have made a covenant with a God who is faithful and who will keep the promises that he has made. So eventually, yes, God's people will experience punishment for their sins and, and exile. But the good news is that God will not give up on his people, that he will be faithful to keep those promises that he made so long ago to Abraham. And even in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to read that during Advent, Jeremiah, as he is calling the people to obedience and calling them to turn to the Lord and to keep their word, to turn away from foreign gods and from their sins. Jeremiah has this beautiful picture where he talks about a day that's coming when God's people will be given new hearts. And with these new hearts, the law will be written on their hearts and they will be able to be obedient in a way they never have before. As we come to the end of Joshua 24, I want to read these last few verses in 29 through 33 for us. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gilbeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So we come to the end of Joshua, and Joshua ends in a similar way as the book began. Remember we began the book of Joshua with the death of Moses? Well, we end the book of Joshua with the death of Joshua. Um, and we are reminded here as we think about the people's sin, and we think about this, this foreboding verse in verse 19, that you are not able to serve the Lord, that the people need a better Joshua and a better Moses. But yet there is good hope for those of us in Christ that a better Joshua is coming. 
You see, when Jeremiah was talking about the law being written on our hearts, he was pointing us forward to Christ. He was pointing us forward to one who would be the payment for our sins, who would come and who would bear the penalty of sin for us on the cross, that by his wounds we would be healed, that he would make us right with God through the death that he would face on the cross in the shedding of his innocent blood, and that Christ also is perfectly obedient in our place. You think about the history of Israel and how Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and how Israel was disobedient in the wilderness and grumbled, and yet we see Christ in the wilderness being tempted and choosing to follow the Lord and to flee from Satan. And we see Christ in the garden faced with the cup before him as he walks the path to the cross and choosing to follow the Father's will, even though it means death. And so in Christ, not only do we receive forgiveness for our sins, but we also stand before the Lord and the Lord looks and sees not our messy, messy, fallible, broken record, but he sees the work of Christ and his perfect obedience in our place. And so as we end Joshua, that is our good hope, that a better Joshua was coming, one that would pave the way for us to be able to say the law is written on our hearts because of the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And that's good hope for you and for me uh, as we are fallible fallen creatures, that there is a faithful God who is coming to make all things new. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for your word. Um, Even as we think about the ways we have seen your goodness and your kindness in our lives, would you help us to remember these are all gifts from you that are not earned but are freely bestowed. And most of all, would you help us to see the gift of Christ, that we can have relationship with you and that our relationship with you is not based on a record of our rights and our wrongs, but based on the record of what Christ has done for us. We thank you for that hope that that brings and for the promise that you are always with us at work in our hearts to help make us more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.